Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in Military History. This is Boris Karpa. And with me is Dr. Professor, even, Professor John D. Hustler from the Command and General Staff College. And he is an editor of a fascinating book, which I've read with great interest. It's, I think, important for anybody who cares about history. It's called Seven Myths of Military History. But as we will discuss today, it's, I think it has an importance somewhat beyond this. I'm pleased to have you with us today, John. Thank you for having me on. Great to be here. And as I always say, on this show, we are creatures of tradition. And so there are some traditional questions which I always ask the guests on our show. And the first one is, can you tell our listeners, can you enlighten our audience a bit about what this book, what is this book, Seven Myths of Military History, what is it about, what does it bring to the table? Sure. So Seven Myths of Military History is an attempt by a, um, a panel of, of experts in various fields to examine some of the um, more persistent myths and mythologizing that go along with military history. Uh, Military history is um, uh, continually studied and read about. It's very popular among um, um, lay audiences. And there are a number of things that are put forward by historians that have stuck around for a while that that are are somewhat questionable. And these are usually not uh, facts of history in terms of this person did that or this battle happened here. But um, what we might refer to as as constructs or paradigms, um, notions about military history um, that are sort of frameworks that people use to analyze big pieces of the past. And so you can teach military history through one of these frameworks. Um, and what we found over time is that in the specialist literature, um, many of these many of these frameworks, many of these constructs are are problematic, and it's not because someone set out to uh, to be deceitful or to mislead. Quite the contrary, people try to set out with a to, in an attempt to make things easier, in a sense, to understand broad swaths of time and geographical areas um, through these kind of simpler devices that seem to have explanatory power. They explain big chunks of military historical developments. Uh, But the problem is, is that over time, as these things are scrutinized, uh, many of them tend to be more misleading than accurate. And while they may have value as a teaching tool, uh, they end up sort of distorting historical experience and and leaving people with the wrong impression. And at, at, at kind of at the worst end of it, 
uh, producing interpretations that are that are deleterious not only to historical study but but sometimes uh, to uh, the military uh, practice itself. And so, what I wanted to do was set out and look at seven of these big myths that are out there, um, or this, if they're not flat out myths, um, the mythologizing involved with them on the part of certain scholars, uh, and, and really uh, subject them to a little bit of scrutiny by asking experts in those particular areas uh, what they think. Of these uh, of these constructs, uh, they're not the only military history myths that are there. Certainly, um, some might argue they're they're not even the biggest. Um, some may quibble and say, "Well, why didn't you add this to the list, or why didn't you consider this?" Uh, but there's seven that struck me as important, given my twenty some years experience in teaching and writing military history. And they're um, so they're they're areas that I I wanted to investigate further, and uh, that's what the chapters attempt to do. They try to figure out: um, Is this myth making? Is it mythology? Is the construct uh, right? Is it misleading? And explain why to um, an undergraduate audience and up. Uh, to make chapters that are, are really comprehensible by a, a broad readership. And so we're not talking about some discussion about how tall Napoleon was. We are talking about uh, broader topics, which will help us hopefully um, understand um, understand historical processes better. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Not small little. I mean, there's every field and every subfield has its little fights about you mentioned Napoleon. How tall was Napoleon? Was he tall for his age? Is it a myth? Those sorts of things. And then those are all interesting questions. But these are are big, broad categories that apply to centuries of historical um, development in in the military sphere. And and that's why I picked them, because they're so big and they encompass so much. We hear, you know, it says in New Books Network, right in the title, it's in the logo. And so in any any forum where we focuses on books, you know, a lot of people who are prolific readers are also writers, or there might be aspiring writers. And so for this audience, for the people who are listening to us and who are thinking, you know, I'm working on a book, I should write a book. Can you maybe tell them a little bit about your experience editing this uh, volume and maybe tell us some of of the adventure you've gone on uh, making this book happen, some of the challenges you've overcome? So a very wise person told me, boy, 20 some years ago uh, to to never edit. And by that, he meant um, these collections of uh, of scholarly essays or chapters um, take up an, an awful lot of time and and, and pose their own uh, little difficulties. And his advice was to simply never do it, um, not not get into it and spend time writing your own books instead of editing the work of others. And of course, I being young, I, I completely ignored him um, and have since edited uh, several several volumes of essays. So, so what I'll say is that they carry unique challenges uh, that are different from, from writing a book. Um, number one, you have to find a roster of authors. Um, you, you have to find people who, who buy into whatever theme the book is about, uh, who agree to write essays that, that bend towards that theme, and who are subject matter experts. Um, that can be more difficult than people... Uh, presume at the beginning. Uh, One would think, well, there's a lot of historians out there. Uh, They specialize in all kinds of different subfields. There's an expert for virtually everything if you just sort of um, 
um, look around enough, particularly now with social media, you can you can identify scholars of, of the most obscure topics. Um, and so it seems like, well, I could I could assemble a, a roster pretty easily, particularly for a book like this, which is only seven chapters plus an introduction and an epilogue. Um, I'm, I'm editing another one right now that's 34 chapters and that is huge. Um, but this is only seven. So you would think, well, that that's not too difficult, but it, it's actually more challenging than you would think to find people who, you know, they have to have the time, uh, they have to have the interest, uh, and they need to be able to to meet reasonable deadlines. Um, and so that that's my my first comment. Number number one, and number two would be that issue about deadlines. Editing uh, volumes is is challenging because of the uh, of the target submission dates. If you reach an agreement with a with the publisher and, and you and you get a contract and you say, okay, well, here's here's the book and I promise to have it to you by June of whatever year, uh, that presumes that your authors will be able to get you their material in enough time so that you can look at it, edit it, return it to them, have them make revisions, return it back to you, maybe go through that process again. Um, before you submit it all to the publisher. And, and that can take a long time. In, in this case, this book took well over two years uh, to assemble. Um, and, and some of that is, um, is, is um, a good thing because you want to look at essays and you want to be able to, um, to really make them the best they can be, to really make the words of the author shine. Uh, on, on the other hand, though, it can be a, um, a little frustrating uh, because you you are waiting for people to turn in their content and to revise, and then you're also waiting on the publisher uh, to go through and and make their comments, send it out for peer review, and those sorts of things. And so, what I would just say is, when you're writing your own book, a lot of that process you control yourself. When you do an edited volume, you are relying on others, uh, potentially a lot of others to meet deadlines for you. And of course, everyone's busy. They're, you know, they're teaching, they're grading, they're writing, they have family, there's holidays. Um, and, and that includes, you know, for, for me as the editor, I have had my own moments where I just couldn't work on the book because I had other commitments. It was more important at the time to grade student papers, for example, uh, because I needed to turn them back in uh, for, my, for my job. And you have to kind of put off the project for a while. So I think deadlines um, is is the number two thing I would say in terms of challenges. And then I would offer a third and final. Um, and as and this is part of the wonderful thing about editing, uh, but also a challenge, uh, particularly in a book like this, we cover in seven myths of military history, about 2,500 years of history, um, two and a half millennia, which is an awful long time, which means that y- you have to have expertise and interest in all of that history. Um, not only the, the interest to read about it and to learn about it, uh, but also the expertise to be able to usefully comment on it to your authors and give them advice that is not, um, that is not silly or outdated uh, or not germane to what they're working on. Um, and so it, it really is a, a challenge to have a good grasp of the material. We, none of us specializes in 2,500 years of history. Uh, no historian really does. So can you step out of your comfort zone, learn about broad areas of history that may or may not be within your uh, area of specialization? Uh, and, and that's the big challenge to doing a collection like this. But I, w- I would add the caveat. I say it's also incredibly rewarding uh, because if you if you can take the time and um, and, and have the time to read and to learn, um, it, it really opens up your eyes to all kinds of historical vistas you never would have considered before. And I, with this collection, 
my authors turned in such excellent chapters. I, I just found myself marveling at their erudition on the one hand, like the, the material they were dealing with and, and how they were dealing with it was quite simply amazing uh, to see, especially in a in an editing revision process to see how their minds work. Um, and then on the and then on the backside of that, uh, I learned so much from editing this book, and I can't help but think that my own teaching. And my own research has has been rewarded as as a result of the process. So I would say my advice to anyone who wants to assemble an edited collection, uh, understand that you're dealing with people, um, people who have busy lives and who may or may not be able to meet meet the deadlines that that you think are so important. You need to be able to work with those people. You need to be able to find those people. um, But that at the end of the day, it's a great challenge that's tremendously rewarding. So it's hard, but it's worth it. Exactly. And so I'd like to start off with something which is, I believe, a soft a softball of a, uh, of a question, a little a little softball. One of the myths which you choose to address is something which is repeated in the popular culture, which people will which people will uh, talk about a lot as if it were true. This idea that religion causes more war, most wars. We've seen the bumper sticker: "Science takes you to the moon, religion flies you into skyscrapers." And so there's this idea that religion causes most wars, and we've seen people talk about it. You know, some of them are historians, some of them are science fiction writers, some of them are comedians, but. There's not really a lot of evidence for this idea, is there? No, there isn't. Um, and and this is one that that really sort of tickled our fancy at the at, from the very beginning um, when I spoke to the author Andrew Holt um, about about writing this chapter. The the rhetoric that's out there that uh, religious war is you know causes more conflict than anything else. And he notes some very famous people who made those sorts of comments, the comedian George Carlin, probably most famously, but also types like President Richard Nixon uh, and and others in the past who have, who have said, well, religion is the cause of all this conflict. And I think there's various reasons um, people say that. Um, it's, it's not mere rhetoric. It's a a particular reading of history. It's looking back and, and looking at conflicts. And there seem to be a lot that were begun uh, by by issues of re- religious adherence or faith or zealotry, um, and I think in in a, in a in a quantitative sense, they they think in their minds that sure there there was an awful lot of this in the past, and it seems to be the common denominator for all of this this war and suffering. And then I would think, and this is my own personal opinion. Um, I don't know that the that the author of this chapter, Andrew, would agree with me or not. Um, but also, I think in the modern world, when when people see religious war, it seems to them a touch on the irrational side. Um, instead of fighting for a policy, uh, fighting for um, for for human rights, uh, these sorts of things, uh, you know, a particular justified cause, they're fighting for an ideology or. A, a religious creed. Uh, it seems to be sort of old-fashioned, um, something in the past, something that the people did a long time ago, but that we have superseded in our modern world. And so you get kind of a dual effect, right? It, it looks like here's a lot of wars started by religion, and and we judge them to be not rational, um, in, in, according to our understandings of rationality. And so th- those come together, I think, in the idea that that religion um, caused the most conflict. And what Andrew 
uh, discovers as he goes through his chapter is that it's it's really not true. And and he was interested in tackling it from both a quantitative and a qualitative perspective, right? Um, on the one hand, he wanted to look and say, okay, um, what do we mean by religion? What do we classify as a religious war? Uh, why do we consider religious wars such bad things? And really kind of address the root of the rhetorical issue. Uh, but then he also wanted to do a quantitative piece, which frankly was amazing because he was able to span most of uh, recorded history around the world and quantify how many religious wars have there actually been. Um, looking at you're looking at Asia and at Africa and the Americas and Europe and all these places and, and doing kind of a you know an, an, an accounting job and figuring out well how many have there been uh, how many of them could we deem religious um, just straight out that's clearly a religious war how many could we say had sort of religious overtones and uh, maybe it wasn't the you know the, the exact primary driver of the war but yet it had a lot of religion wrapped up with it and then how many wars were sort of devoid of religious motivation. Now, maybe there were religious aspects, but overwhelmingly the, the primary cause was politics or political ideology or something else. Um, and he, he went through the, the, the sources that have looked at this and found that you know, numerically speaking, religious wars are only a fraction, a very small fraction of the wars that have been fought in the history of the world. And so he put forward the case that, um, that in a couple different senses, religion is not the cause of most wars and, and then, and then ponders, it's interesting. You know, why do we think it is? And, and what does that mean? How does, how does this myth survive and what effect does that have upon our understanding of military history? And so just to drill down a bit for our audience who have not read the book, essentially what, what has been done is that there is a, if we take the, the definition of a war, a religious war, strictly, rather than just to include something which we believe might have started because the two parties have different religions or, or something which has a religious undertone, but if we restrict ourselves to wars which, like the Crusades, which had a specific explicit religious reason, then we have a that we have that only a minor, only a minority of conflicts actually have such a such religious motivation to them. Right, right, exactly. Um, and whereas, as I mentioned, you you might have wars that have certain religious overtones, but they um, but they are not primarily being fought um, on religious grounds. And of course, if we start looking at if we start pulling in anything that seems religious to us. That it's it's very difficult to have a, a strict definition of anything. It is, and that's one thing that that Professor Holt um, talks about. Um, what? How do you even? Number one, how do you define religion? Uh, and number two, how do you define a religious war? And what he found is that there's there's considerable disagreement among scholars on what it even means. Um, so if you say that. A war, um, which one war that had been dubbed a um, a religious war, um, was the um, was things like the Hundred Years' War uh, in England and France, which certainly during the Middle Ages you're talking about two states that have strong religious bases, but, but they're not fighting about religion at the end of the day. Um, they're, they're fighting about a royal politics. They're fighting about. Um, North Atlantic trade. They're, they're fighting about other things. Sure, religion is there and you have 
uh, holy warriors like Joan of Arc. Um, and certainly there's a religious resonance, but the point he would make is that it's not primarily a religious war. That's not why the war started. That's not why the war was conducted. It's not why the war keeps coming back um, after taking you know, several pauses over the course of a hundred some years. Um, and so we really need to differentiate wars like that, that are, that are not religious wars, that are, are really political wars and, and, and find a way to separate them. I think the difficulty is in some periods, religion and politics uh, go together um, so thoroughly, it can often be be difficult to distinguish them. But I think the um, the, the idea of sort of the, the, would a reasonable person look at the Hundred Years' War and say, you mentioned the Crusades, and say those are the same types of war fought over the same things? And, and the answer is obviously no. Uh, the Crusades are fought for such specific religious purposes. Everybody knows it. It passes the smell test, whereas the Hundred Years' War really doesn't. And so he found himself trying to make those distinguishing um, characteristics. And of course, everybody can disagree with those. Uh, but in his analysis, he said, once you narrow it down and say, look, let's let's take these wars. They're not religious. Let's be honest with ourselves. They're really not. Um, take them out and then do the quantification. Um, and those that's how he got the results he did. And so something like 15 percent of these recorded conflicts are religious wars. Right, right. It's a, it's a, a shockingly no, low number uh, compared to what you generally hear. And from this, I would like to talk about something which is very controversial. It sometimes even is a, a subject of discussion, you know, it's a non-historical press. And I, I just like to caution the listeners that there are some historians who do who do promote this, this view, who who will disagree with, uh, with, uh, with John and I. There's this idea of a Western way of war, which has been promoted by uh, Victor, uh, Victor Davis Hanson and uh, some, other, some other historians. The idea that there's a way of war which is unique to uh, Western uh, cultures, and that this is at the core of their supposed military supremacy. But you don't feel this is really true. Right. This is the this is when when I thought of doing a book on the seven myths of military history. This is the the first myth I thought of the Western way of war. It's something I've argued about in the past. Um, it's something I, I I fundamentally disagree with. Um, and and you know and there's my bias, um, which which was clear to see. And um, and it's one of those constructs that I was talking about in the very beginning. One of those things that that. It has sort of the air of truthiness about it, right? Uh, people look at it and say, well, if I look at the history of the world, it seems like for a long time, Western states have dominated the world in terms of colonialism and imperialism. And if you look at the world wars and these sorts of things, and and, and they ask the question, well, why is that? And one of the answers that was, was um, now has a, a legacy of, um, of over 30 years is that, well, there must be something about the way that, that Western states fight. And some, like you mentioned, Victor Davis Hanson, some will extend that and say, well, it's, it's not necessarily a, a, a way they, they fight in terms of um, uh, machinery and, and techniques and whatnot, but also maybe a part of their culture, maybe the way the West thinks about warfare. And, um, and, and since I've been reading about this since the, since the 90s, I've been very dubious of, of the concept. Um, and we have an author who wanted to tackle it head on, Everett Wheeler, uh, who is a classicist and is sort of the perfect person to do this because 
arguments about the Western way of war um, really tend to stretch backward all the way to the period of the ancient Greeks. Uh, because if you're arguing that there's something about Western culture uh, that makes our warfare so much more lethal, uh, so much more effective, then that argument it, it sort of follows that you need to start at the beginning. There's something in the beginning of Western culture that, that led to this um, and that has extended until today. Um, and usually that, you know, for Hansen, it was you go all the way back to the Battle of Marathon uh, during the Persian Wars. Others have different starting places. Uh, but but what Dr. Wheeler wanted to sort of show is that the, the very concept from the beginning is is fallacious, that there is no firm Western way that you can point to from the very beginning, uh, because it turns out that Western societies, if you want to start with Greece and then move into the Romans, uh, employed a number of ways of war uh, that are not so easily categorizable. So if one says, for example, and you routinely hear this, that, that Western armies are so effective because they are, they are so lethal, they come to kill, right? Um, and they like to fight straight up man-to-man um, in, you know, with infantry on the battlefield. Let's go out and, 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 and see what happens on the field. Um, whereas Eastern cultures, and, and Dr. Wheeler refers to this as sort of a, a Eurocentric view, um, really an ethnocentric view, uh, the idea that that alien cultures, which were are deemed by scholars or used to be deemed by scholars as sort of you know barbaric cultures, right? The other cultures, well, they resorted to trickery, right? And they use archery fire, and they they use standoff between forces, and they wanted to do everything except get up man-to-man on the field and, and fight straight up. Um, so in the East, you had this trickery, uh, which he refers to as the Odysseus, right? The trickster from the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, whereas Western cultures were more um, the um, more the Achilles, right? In, in the Iliad, right? Come out here and let's fight right here and now and show who's the best. And what he shows is that, no, Western cultures were like a lot of other cultures around the world. They used all kinds of things they used whatever techniques would enable them to win. And so that means sometimes they fought in infantry battles and sometimes they used ranged uh, missile attacks. Sometimes they used trickery and deceit. Uh, sometimes they did this through diplomacy, sometimes through warfare. Uh, but all of the things that these scholars would impute to non-Western cultures were actually being used by Western cultures. So what he finds is from the very beginning, there is no particular Western way of war. Um, there are different manners of fighting that are common to lots of different civilizations. And it, what you have instead is a particular focus on the part of ancient uh, and, and later authors all the way up to the present, selecting attributes of Western warfare and emphasizing them and, and claiming that this is a Western thing. Uh, so one he posits on is decisive battle, the concept of decisive battle, which Clausewitz suggests as part of a war of annihilation. Um, the idea that Western armies seek decisive battle, they seek decisive results. Uh, and he goes on to prove that, no, that's not always true. Uh, and number two, other cultures sought decisive battle as well. Um, to think that the Assyrians or the Persians avoided decisive battle is, is, is sort of ludicrous. Um, and so he attacks it really at the beginning and as a classicist, he's particularly you know, adept at doing that. Um, he sort of attempts to dismantle this construct at the very beginning of its origin. Um, and he does a lot of quoting in the article uh, from scholars like Hansen uh, and others um, 
um, who, who, who put forward this idea. And, uh, and some of them are, who are even sort of now backing away from it a little bit um, and modifying and qualifying the idea of the Western way of war. And what Dr. Wheeler points out is that, look, the, the whole, the whole um, edifice was, was sort of a sham to begin with. And so from this, I'd like to talk about something which is constant. Is it, it's continuous to something which is continuously relevant. It comes up again and again, and you know, in, not only in military circles but also in policy debates. This idea of a revolution in war. The idea that the, there is a there is a certain way of making war in a given era. And then somebody comes out, and somebody comes out, it's attributed to, there are different episodes in history which this is attributed to, where somebody comes out with a different way of making war, and they sweep the field, they overmatch, they overmatch their opponents, and, you know, they've, and if, if a society has failed to adopt this new way of war, they're just swept away. But this is, and today, this is in the form, you know, of the advocacy of the, the RMA, the Revolution of Military Affairs, where they suggest that we can cause this to happen, that we, if we spend enough money, if we spend enough effort on developing new technology, then we can possess this new way of war and, of course, overmatch everybody else. But this is an idea which is somewhat... And you, there are two chapters in your book which discuss different aspects of this. And so I, I'm just rolling them into a single question. This whole idea of a revolution in war, it's, it's somewhat overstated, isn't it? Yes, there's a tendency. I mean, and this is an, another um, another example of what I started off with, of, of, of a construct that sort of seems useful in the beginning, uh, but, but, but hides historical realities. There's this... Um, this notion that there are revolutionary moments in history that that transformed warfare uh, forever, um, you know, where where there was some kind of development, some kind of um, um, social or economic or political change that brought about a a complete um, uh, alteration in the way that wars were fight were fought. There's a lot of examples of these, a lot of different books, and a lot of disagreement over the numbers, how many revolutions there were, military revolutions in history. Some say five, some say seven. Um, I've seen numbers in the in the dozens. As um, as Professor John France, who wrote this chapter, points out, that some have said just in the in the ancient Greek period there were three different military revolutions. Um, so there's there's all kinds of numbers of these. I think it stems from historians being centered on um, on either events or, or, or those moments where they want to see some kind of definitive change where they can say the world was like this up to this point, and then something changed and the world was different, right? It was a revolutionary moment. Um, and those revolutionary moments ushered in massive changes that, that thoroughly revised the way that, uh, that armies fight. And that military enterprises are um, the way the military enterprises are viewed, and they look at such things like the French Revolution. Um, you know this this idea that uh, nationalism sweeps through France and creates this this um, drive on the part of citizens to to become a citizen army, and that that's a revolutionary change. 
Um, and, and those moments can be very useful in the classroom, I have to point out, uh, because it, it, again, chunks out history into definable bits. So you can say, well, there was the period before the French Revolution and then the period after the Re- Revolution. And so we can teach that revolutionary period as a period of change. It's something that students can anchor on and that they can understand. Uh, it's a way for them to organize their notes and to comprehend the past. Um, but what John France points out is that, number one, not only is there a lot of disagreement about what is revolutionary is that almost all of these things are not actually revolutions. They're more in an evolutionary model. Change happens slowly. It happens over time. It happens incrementally. And very rarely do you have these big splashes where everything is different. Uh, so one example he points to, if you look at the French Revolution, which is a very popular one where you say, you know, that nationalism changed Western warfare because now you have free citizens fighting. He points out, yes, absolutely. There were some free citizens who signed up, but Napoleon, to conduct his wars, had to rely on conscription. He was forced to rely on conscription for the bulk of his conquest. That's that's not a free volunteer army. Uh, that is a conscripted army, an army that is gathered together of people who however well they may have been disposed towards the cause, uh, did not envision themselves in a military career and now find themselves in uniform. And if, if that's the change, well, you can go back plenty of centuries before the French Revolution and find people being pressed into service in uniform. Is it a conscription act? Is it the French levy on mass? Well, maybe not. Uh, but the concept of taking people who don't necessarily want to fight and, and making them fight had been around for an awful long time. Um, so what he would say is that the the, the revolution is, is more of an incremental change. It's an evolution of the concept, certainly, uh, but it's nothing radical. It's nothing uh, revolutionary. And so his essay really drives at, at that notion that this, this game, what he calls it, an academic party game of picking revolutions and finding those moments where things indelibly changed and life will never be the same uh, is, is sort of a fruitless enterprise that that is... Um, that obscures a lot of what was really going on. And it interestingly uh, fits into some of the other material in the volume. Uh, One of the things about the myths that I found so fascinating is how often they interlock with each other. Uh, So for example, the military revolutions, if you look at them, I think all of them, if, if not all of them, most of them are centered in the West. They have been proposed as changes in Western warfare. And then those lead into the discussion of Western way of war again. Oh, well, there's something about the West that's specials because the West had military revolutions and other states did not. And what he points out in his essay, Professor Francis says this is this is patently absurd because you look at these modern Western navies trying to sail around the world and they get to Mumbai, uh, the British get to Mumbai and they get defeated. Um you know, in in, this, in 1689. So where is this Western prowess? Where is this revolution that powered new army? Um, so the military revolutions piece is, is one that's fascinating. The other one that you mentioned, the revolution in military affairs or the so-called RMAs, a concept that's oh, it's been around about since the time of the U.S. Gulf War in 1991, thereabouts. Uh, this idea that that armies can go in and, and deliberately revolutionize um, Usually, their technology. Sometimes you hear you talk of non-technological RMAs, but but usually their technology based uh, can 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 affect a, a sort of a small revolution uh, that gives them an asymmetrical advantage, um, or as you say, as you said, overmatch against an opponent. 
And in the, in the seventh chapter of the book, uh, what uh, Professor Rob Johnson really points out is that it's, it's really history through what he calls technological determinism. Uh, the idea that you, you look in the past and you find those moments there were, where there was a technological change and it all of a sudden has an explanatory power. Once we have this gun, once we have this plane, once we have this thing, then it fundamentally changes how we manage military affairs. And over and over again, he, he, in, a, in a very well-crafted essay, he takes us through the, uh, the philosophy of technological determinism and looks at the RMA and, and, and comes to find it, it's not really the RMA, the so-called RMA um, that is doing these things. It is, it's humans making choices given the constraints that they have and the vote, their, their own capabilities and the votes of their adversaries and problem solving, thinking critically to come up with solutions. And that it's, it's not a determinism in which, well, we have the tech and therefore we must do this or we will create the tech. In other, in other words, uh, to go forward and to win, it's sure we have new technology, we have new practices. How do those things fit in with the force structure that we've got? How do they help us against the threat that we're facing? How do we use them based on the economic and political and really social realities in our nations um, that, that can enable and constrain a military force? And what he finds out is that it's the human aspect that has really driven warfare um, and that it will always be the human aspect. Uh, that drives warfare. He's got a fascinating little bit about artificial intelligence, uh, where he starts to to think about the, you know, what AI may bring in in the future, um, and and he comes to find that we're not at the full on robot stage yet. It's still how humans decide to employ it, and like everything in war, they can deploy things correctly, or incorrectly. Fog and friction do not go away with technology. And so what these two authors, John France and Rob Johnson, are really, really trying to point at is that these, these explanatory factors that historians sometimes like to throw out, that this happened because of this revolution, or this happened because of this new technology, or this happened because of this new technique. Really what you're looking at is this happened because you have a complex military organization full of human beings making decisions with the things they have at their time at their disposal um, and coming up with the best solutions they can come up with um, in the uh, context of fog, friction, human error and foibles, political interference and all these other things that can happen. Um, and that instead of looking for these big markers to say, well, this changed everything or nothing was the same after this point, which is very sort of event focused um, you know, that there's a moment in the past where everything that, that on which everything pivoted. Um, instead, look at the context, look at the large uh, story, look at the, the evolution of these things. And that's where the truth really lies. It lies in the human sphere. It lies in the, in the, in the realm of creative, critical thinking, human decision making, not with any particular moment that changed everything or a piece of technology uh, that completely radicalized the way we think and live. And from this, I'd like to move on to a particular, a particular, a particular form of, uh, of, uh, I would say, the RMA before the word was coined. And of course, we are talking about strategic air warfare, which, in its original form, 
you know, it was originally advocated as this idea that you would send these bombers, that they would strike deep into the enemy's territory, they would wipe out their industries, they would, sometimes it was advocated that they would, you know, kill the civilians in their homes, and that they would win the war for you without actually fighting on the front, because they would so devastate the enemy, so devastate their homeland, that they either would be unable to to wage the war, or they would lose the will to do so. And so this idea has been challenged a lot, uh, you know, in the military press and professional publications. But the the argument which is made in the book and which is elsewhere also made, many people are not familiar with it, and maybe you could explain this. Maybe you could explain this to our audience. Um, I would say that, yeah, you're, you're correct. I think of, of all the chapters in the book, uh, this would be the one that, that people in the know would nod their heads to and say, sure, yeah, that, of course that's, that's sort of mythological. Um, I, I don't know that the, the general public knows that or thinks about it. And I also think there's still a few diehards out there um, who, who still talk about strategic air power. It's, it's a fascinating topic. It's, you know, when, when airplanes began to be used in a military manner, armies were opening up a whole new domain of warfare, the aerial domain, and it was completely untested. There had been uh, dirigibles and balloons, and and certainly there had been some role from Napoleon forward of of people floating in the sky. But the idea of using aerial bombing to defeat an opponent is, uh, it was brand new. There was no doctrine for these sorts of things. Um, it's, it's sort of dreaming up. You're starting from ground, from, from ground zero and saying, okay, so what do we think airplanes can do? Uh, what can we do with bombers? And, and, and you know, to, uh, to be a little cheesy, the sky was wide open, right? Um, and so the earliest theorists, um, people like uh, Giulio Duhay, the Italian, um, and, um, and, and Hugh Trenchard in, in the RAF, they're looking at this and they're, and, and they're thinking of the, the possibilities. And they had been emerging from World War I, which was a horrific, uh, destructive war um, that saw 9 million combatants die. Uh, and the common thought among these air power enthusiasts, I think, I think was one that was very aspirational and very positive. How, how do we avoid ever suffering through this again? Um, how do we make sure that those soldiers don't die in the trenches? And the idea was we use technology. We bomb our adversaries from the air. We destroy them. Um, and as, as you said, um, it involves from the very earliest um, the deliberate targeting of civilians, um, deliberate collateral damage. Duhay talked about these, uh, these bombing squares in which you would saturate a target with high explosive incendiary and chemical weapons. Um, to destroy civilian and military infrastructure at the same time, uh, but particularly civilian, at which point the citizens would petition their government. Um, they would demand the, the withdrawal from the war and you would get a good political solution to the war. And the idea was, is by doing this, you don't have to send in army divisions. You don't have to send in what we call today boots on the ground. And there was even this, this theory that, you know, so many squadrons of airplanes could replace those divisions. Uh, you wouldn't even need those soldiers. And so it's been a dream for a long time uh, to, to do this. And you can see why the dream is, is sort of so seductive in a way. Uh, it's, it's fewer losses of life. You don't have the trenches from the Western Front. Uh, it's a technological solution, which is, um, is simultaneously uh, interesting and exciting 
to the public. I mean, um, the, the public has long been captivated, as, as John Curatola points out, by, by high technology, by, um, by these um, death-defying human um, accomplishments in the air. Uh, and reasonably, it, it's probably cheaper if you can win with a few squadrons of bombers, um, as opposed to turning your society to a wartime posture and you know, going on rationing and upping your industrial production and spending all that money and going into debt. It seems like a, a clean clinical solution. And I would finally say it's, it's politically very palpable because a, a national leader can say, look, this isn't going to cost much money or lives. We're just going to use aircraft. We're going to bomb them from the air and we'll get a solution. And so it, it's sellable. The rhetoric is, is very sellable. But what Professor Curatola points out is that it's, it's a dream. Um, you can do strategic bombing. You can attack strategic targets that are supposed to collapse the enemy's war effort. Um, but what we found in every uh, attempt at doing this is that it doesn't work, is that it, it didn't work in World War II with the combined bombing offensive. Um, some will say it worked against Hiroshima and, Naka, and, uh, and um, Nagasaki in the Pacific, although Professor Kuratola challenges that and says it's, it really wasn't the bombing of um, the Japanese cities. It was the entry of the USSR into war. Uh, others would say it was the unrestricted submarine warfare against Japan that cut off all their resources. Um, it didn't work just in to, Korea. Well, I'm sorry. John, just to contextualize this a little bit, if you don't object, one thing that strikes me is at the time that the strategic warfare, the strategic air warfare was being popularized, it was an era where all sorts of ideas of war without war, so to speak, were being popularized. This was where, you know, people also advocated starving the enemy population through a blockade was was much advocated. This was when people first suggested trade embargo. Well, not first, but the global trade embargo. It becomes very popular as an idea around the 1930s. So the idea of inflicting war on the enemy without waging war, so to speak, it becomes very popular around this time. Right. And you're, yeah, there had been a few voices ever since the 19th century, um, kind of supporting that. So you have like Yvonne Block talking about blockades, right? Uh, you have the naval theorists, uh, Mahan and Corbett talking about the blockading of ports and, and the sanctioning and cutting off of routes. And um, yeah, this idea that you can get war um, without the, the, the dirty, desperate fighting, uh, that has that had taken place. Um, it's it's it's. I suppose you could argue it's it's a variation on that theme, uh, the idea that we get a big victory for comparatively little cost. Uh, because at the end of the day, if we were to pull out our Carl von Clausewitz, he could, he would say, well, the the way you get victory is um, when your adversary lays down their arms, right? That that's where victory lies, and you can do that by destroying the enemy soldiers. Uh, or you can do that by by convincing them to put the guns down. And if a blockade can do that, if an air war, a war of, of terror, if you want to you know call it that, you know death falling from the skies, can convince them to put down their arms, then then so much the better. Uh, it saves all of the uh, the hassle, the carnage. Um, you get these sort of cleaner wars, I suppose, um, where things are are are, are tidier. And, um, and, and, and don't involve all of that major expense and suffering. And so I think your contextualization is exactly right. Um, it, it, it sort of fits into that. We will get a victory on the cheap and we'll do it through high technology. We'll do it from the air. Uh, and particularly for a country like the United States, which has 
um, has had for most of its history of the sort of air superiority, um, it, it's hard to challenge us in the air, and it, it seems like an attractive proposition. And of course, in terms of the civilian casualties, hopefully enough people are a lot will uh, you know a lot of the time when people want to avoid war is people actually wanting to avoid you know our own people so to speak dying and if we need to blow up their civilians well it's their civilians it's not our civilians sure and and i think any any state that goes into war has has that idea right that you know prison preserving that the citizens' lives versus the adversaries. I think that it fits into, and it becomes an ethical question, right? Um, how do we conduct the war? How do we fight? Um, you could apply uh, just war theory to this, uh, but what I often hear is this this branch of ethics, if you want to talk consequentialism, right? Um, we may have to destroy this city and cause an awful lot of civilian damage, but if it ends the war quickly, then ultimately there will be fewer casualties, right, at the end of the day. Um, and I think we look at this today and we, we realize what collateral damage does. And it's obviously a hot button issue with things going on today in, in, in Ukraine and in Israel. You know, a lot of the headlines talk about collateral damage and what's suffered by the noncombatants. Um, but I also think historical context is important. Uh, if you are coming out of two world wars, um, which you have, you know, the First World War, 9 million, the Second World War, 50 million. If you're looking at, at that kind of carnage, then I think humans are going to be inclined to seek better, faster ways. Um, and so you, you have to make that ethical call. Um, if, if I attack a city and it leads to civilian lives, but it ends the war more quickly, um, is that worth it? And to answer that question, of course, every every state and culture is going to be unique in how the, how they look at uh, warfare, how they how they look at the cause and whatnot. And I think air power fits sort of neatly into that and says, you know, if you can if you can reach your political ends through this particular way, um, then why not do it? Uh, the problem is, though, as Professor Curatola points out, is that it you just never get it with strategic air power. You can get some results, but at the end of the day. You either require some other kind of um, some other kind of inter, um, interaction in the war, a political move by a state, a diplomatic um, outreach or effort, uh, a ground war, and an, a, a naval action. It always requires something else. It's it's never something that you can get just on on the cheap. Um, and as he goes through his chapter, it's it's remarkable. He talks about these different wars where you would think, well, air power. Would be um, would seemingly be the answer, but you know from from the Korean War forward, he, he finds you know in Korea there's nothing to bomb. There are no strategic targets. Uh, in Vietnam, it, it doesn't get the job done. And even in the Gulf War in '91, where uh, people love to talk about the the RMA of this you know, sort of net centric warfare and you know precision guided munitions, and we can see in the dark and use GPS and all these things. At the end of the day, the bombing campaign, which went on for a long time gave way to a ground assault. The U.S. still had to commit soldiers uh, on the ground to get the job done. And so it's this dream that he points to that people still want it. It's easy to sell politically. Don't worry, we're not going to war. We're just going to do some bombing. Um, But it never really gets you a strategic victory on its own. And so I think the, the motivation is good. 
the motivation is, I mean, you could even argue it, it's in, in some cases, um, you know, righteous, um, considerate of one's own population. Uh, but if you never get a strategic victory from it, then then sort of what's the point of it? And I, th- I think what his, his article really does is, is challenge those who are still in the mode of thinking, why don't we just do it from the air and, and, and spare our citizens? Um, it really requires a lot of thinking as to whether that's even possible. But I would just like to push back a bit because I, because there is a, I think there is a distinction to be made be, between the idea of a strategic air power between bombing bombing Hanoi or Dresden or what have you and the use the use of these uh, these guided munitions these long range guided munitions such as what the United States has done in Serbia where you could use your air power to sort of engage the enemy's forces through their depths this isn't the same as what we've discussed prior Right. I think if you're if you're talking long range fires, um, then, yeah, that's that's a different component of warfare than strategic bombing um, to, to the degree that if the, both of them can reach out and hit distant targets in the enemy's rear areas, they have a similarity. Of course, air power can go can go much further than even the, you know, the, the, the longest range cannon. If you're talking about, you know, cruise missiles and things like that. They obviously have a much larger, longer range. I think that not, I don't want to put words in, in Professor Curatola's mouth. I, I suspect his response would be, even with things like that, um, you still might not achieve a strategic victory with, with just with, with long range fires, um, whether they're being delivered by aircraft, whether it's being delivered from ships or from ground sources, um, that, that there's, at the end of the day, you're looking for targets that you can collapse that will have a strategic effect, right? So if I'm bombing a city, if I'm attacking a, uh, a, a, a political leadership, for example, is there any strategic target that you can collapse to get a strategic victory? Um, and I suspect he would be skeptical of that, no matter what uh, particular means you're employing to do that. And from this, I'd like to, there's something which I really like how it was exposed in your book, this idea which you know, always comes up, it's come up at least in the 1930s, that the era of big wars is going to end, we're moving to a new era of warfare. Of course, Lind calls this the fourth generation of war. Recently, they've called it hybrid warfare. This idea of these insurgencies or state-sponsored insurgencies are going to replace war as we know it. But they've always been with us, haven't they? Absolutely. The yeah, Dr. William Cout really kind of takes this on and is you know talking about. When I asked him about it, I said, "How do you, how do you want to phrase this? Do you want to talk about you know fourth generation warfare, so called? Do you want to talk about asymmetrical warfare, hybrid warfare, insurgencies?" And his response, I think, was really good, is that they're all kind of part of a piece of the same pie. And so he, he wanted to do them all. And so the chapter really explores them all. But, you know, for those readers who are or those listeners who are unfamiliar, you know, this, this idea of generational warfare, again, it, it harkens back to what I was talking about earlier, these moments where things changed. Right. This idea that the first generation of warfare is, you know, the use of uh, of mass of manpower, the second generation of 
not of, of, of massing soldiers, but massing effects, right? And then um, maneuver warfare, um, a la um, um, sort of mechanized maneuver being this, this third generation, and now asymmetry and insurgency, uh, this, this new way of thinking, um, which he pins back really to what a lot of thinkers go back to as they look at Mao Zedong in China, um, and his uh, concepts of revolutionary warfare uh, that he is writing about in the 1930s as, as the beginning of something new. And he, he employs, I believe, no less than um, uh, President John F. Kennedy, right, speaking at West Point about the, um, the, this, this new kind of war. Um, and what Professor Kalk figures out is that it's, it's, it's not new at all. Insurgencies have been around for an, an awful long time. Um, the idea of using um, these um, sort of covert actions, guerrilla actions, uh, political insurgency had, had really has a, a long legacy. It might not be as pronounced as state on state warfare, uh, which, which gets all the headlines. But you know, the fact is, is that you can go back, back, back and find all kinds of insurgent groups uh, trying to pull this off. And he also uh, in a section of the essay, which I, th- I think is very interesting, he says it's it's not really Mao either. Uh, that if you're looking just at the 20th century, you can find um, uh, earlier examples in the Irish Revolutionary Wars uh, that predate Mao. Um, but even the Irish themselves um, are not the originators of these things. Um, that that they really have a long legacy, and so he casts a lot of doubt on the idea that there's anything new here. Um, it may be more pronounced. Certainly, he finds that the combination of insurgency with political messaging is more pronounced in the modern world. Um, And when we think of modern day terrorism, the way it operates, not just in terms of um, of violence, but the political messaging attached to it. Um, And he goes through the modes of, you know, when do you use that political messaging? Do you radicalize the population before you fight? Do you radicalize them while you're fighting? Do you do you just go ahead and and forego their radicalization and just fight and 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 once you seize political power, get the get the public on your side? And there's all different forms of it. Uh, but know that this is um this is a very old technique. Um, what he does point to though is along with the political messaging is how the modern world facilitates insurgency in certain ways that that could not be done in earlier centuries. Um, and so he's he's doing a little bit of kind of, I, I think, very, um, very balanced and collegial give and take here. Right. Insurgency is not new, um, but it's different in the modern world because of the technologies that are available. And so he talks about things like dynamite, for example, um, um, automatic weapons, um, even even non-automatic weapons that that are that are easier to load and faster to fire. Um, one of the things he comments on is that you could take you can take a small group of insurgents today and they would have the combat power of a regiment from the past or even a division of soldiers with muskets um, that if you give them TNT and automatic weapons, um, they pack the, the, the punch of much larger groups of soldiers in the past. And so what he says is that it's, it's not that insurgency is new. It's that in the modern world, um, it's, it's easier to make a definable difference with one. Um, you can have more of an impact. You can cause more of a splash because of the materials that are available. And when you combine that with political messaging, it can be a very powerful and lethal combination. Um, so that insurgency and, and fourth generation warfare is not is not really anything new, uh, but the manner in which it's waged, you could say, in the modern world, 
looks a little different than if you were to look at, say, the Sicarii fighting against the Romans in the first century AD. As, as we've said, there's, there's not really, there's not really a new age of war here because there's always been a spectrum between between non-state warfare and what we would call the big state war. So from this, I would like to move on to our last question, and it's also a traditional question, because as I've said, we are creatures of tradition here. So I'd like to ask you, what are the books which you are reading right now? What are the books which you could maybe recommend to our audience, something which, you know, which is at your current stage in your book journey? Sure. I'm, there's a couple of things I'm reading right now that are, that are interesting and I'm still working through them. So I, I don't know if I have a, but I, I think they're, they're very interesting, but I've not finished them yet. So I'm, I'm not ready to render a judgment. Well, one I'm reading is, um, Princeton came out this year, Princeton university press with, um, a very large volume called the new makers of modern strategy. Um, military historians and strategists are, are familiar with this series, the makers of modern strategy. It's been around since the 1940s. This is um, the the new edition. It's really, I suppose, the third edition. Um, And it has dozens and dozens of essays on modern warfare and modern strategy. Uh, This is a text that we're looking to incorporate into our teaching. Uh, And so I'm going through a lot of those essays right now um, and and, and trying to figure out which ones are um, which ones are compelling, which ones are most useful. Uh, And there's some definitely some interesting reading in there, not not all of which I I completely agree with. Uh, But I think if for anyone interested in in military history and strategy, um, it's 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 pretty much required reading right now. It's something to, to get your head wrapped around whether or not you agree with the individual essays or not. Um, and so that's that's one thing I'm reading. Another I'm reading is actually a, a colleague's book, um, which is a, a the translation of a primary source. It's it's an edition uh, by my my colleague Jonathan Abel, um, who translated the general essay on tactics by um, by Guibert, um, the um, um, Antoine uh, Hippolyta, the Comte de, de Guibert, um, who is probably the most important. Uh, essayist on war in the what's called these days the military enlightenment um, in the, in the 18th century, and so he produced a, a really fine translation of that French text. And I've I've just recently acquired a copy, and I'm I'm starting to go through it. Um, not because I'm a um, I'm not a historian of the military enlightenment. Um, as as a medieval historian, my interests um, you know, go go much further back than the 18th century uh, and, and 17th century, but um, but I find it interesting because you have here a, um, a, a military treatise that is starting to, to poke around with some of the emerging trends in warfare in Europe at the time. Um, and it's, it's one of those treatises that was, was not easily accessible in the past. You could, you could get a, a, a French version of it. There was a, a partial English version. But now this one is a nice, complete, annotated uh, version. It's got nice footnotes with relevance to modern literature. And so that's what I'm working through right now. On the one hand, the new makers of modern strategy, all of these you know, dozens of new essays just published in 2023. And on the other hand, a primary source that I, I was really not familiar with and, um, and I'm interested in kind of adding it to my repertoire uh, as I think about um, 17th and 18th century things. And I think I, w- I would say <laughs> this kind of goes back to where I started with advice about the book. Uh, who knew that, you know, by putting together a volume on the seven myths of military history that 
that that that John Hostler, a medieval military historian, would be spending his time these days um, reading about um, modern strategy and military enlightenment theory in a primary source. And so that that's what I'm going through right now. Thank you for being with us today, John. This is, I'm actually I've, I've written down the titles of these books, and I might consider reading them myself. I think this is, a, and a, I think this is quite useful to me personally because I'm also myself on a continuous book journey. And I thank you for being with us today, John. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. And as usual, because, you know, uh, just because of reading books, with writing books, it's, uh, uh, both of these things are like Doritos. You can't have just one. And so when, you, when, I don't say if, when you write your next book or edit your next book, we are happy to have you here again, John. Thank you so much. It would be my pleasure. I appreciate that. <laughs>